0: I'm Dr. Duke, and I'm really pleased to be joined by Stefan Molyneux. We've had a lot of great conversations in the past, Stefan. Me introducing you is kind of like a little brother introducing a big brother. They all know who you are. More of them probably don't know who I am. But uh, for those who don't know, you're a philosopher. You're probably the foremost, most famous philosopher and the most... the greatest defender of philosophy in the modern world. That's how I like to de- to de- describe you when I talk to my friends. You're somebody who well, is... Well, of
1: course, though, to be fair, uh, for some people, popularity equals crassness yeah. and superficiality. So if you all want to think of me as the Justin Bieber of philosophy, that's totally fine. Uh, that, you know, reach, reach is important, but yeah, I would certainly say at three quarters of a billion views and downloads, uh, we've, we've dropped a few truth bombs on the planet over the years. Well, count me a believer.
0: <laughs> well, we, we, we're going to have an interesting conversation today because uh, this is, I think, one of those questions that uh, people start, started following you for, these big how and why questions. And the question is this, has America finally joined the ranks of Europe and the rest of the Western world? Are we now mm-hmm. post Christian America. And for a long time, the United States was that last holder on, wasn't it, to a, uh, a serious belief in religion, one that wasn't just topical or cultural or sociological. But now it seems, Meg, have we reached the point where America, too, has gone post-Christian, like the rest of the Western world? And what does it mean? What does it mean for the rest of the world if that is true? What are your opening thoughts on that?
1: My opening thoughts is a question. Let me ask you this, because this has been kind of rolling around in my brain like a <laughs> seesawing bowling ball these days. So when you set out on your intellectual career to become a professor, to teach children the joys of literature, how well have you achieved, and whether it's under your control or not, sort of another issue, but just in terms of relative to what you wanted, what have you achieved and what's the gap, if any, between those things?
0: Well, I'll be very honest with you with this. Um, I became a a professor because I as an undergraduate, I was the first person in my family to go to college, right? And it often happens with a first-generation college kid. They go all the way, right? They get carried away with it. They, 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 they find there things they could find in the greater world, but they don't ever get there because they see the apogee of being a Ph.D. and entering and remaining in college. So I went like a lot of kids did, first-generation kids. I went all the way. But I got to tell you, I was a business – I came from a very poor family. My dad died when we were very young. My mom was working 50 hours a week. We had three boys. Um, We didn't have a lot. And in fact, we went to, my mom somehow found a way to help us to go to Catholic schools, which is probably the saving grace of my life. Uh, Religion aside, uh, the the quality of education I got in a Catholic school 35, 40 years ago, vastly superior to what I was even getting in the public schools before I transferred over. So that was perhaps the single, 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 I, I, important thing that happened to me as a young person, that we were able to do that in spite of the, the lack of money. And I got to college. I fell in love with... I was a business major. I figured, I gotta make money. I gotta, I'm got i not gonna be poor ever again. I'm gonna go out there. as I'm taking all these economics classes. I'm getting... I shall seas-
1: serve the god of mammon. Exactly.
0: Okay. So I'm getting C's in economics because I just didn't care. I mean, I admire... I mean, to be ec- economically ignorant is a danger, as our culture is finding out. But it wasn't in my mind. I, I mean, mathematics going through all of that, it, that that analysis to come up with two square times pi, eh, it left me cold. I was an idea guy. And I found in the great books of Western culture, I found a reason for things. The great books of, even the pagan Greek and Roman books, the, uh, the Judeo-Christian books moving forward, fell in love with them. I was, so by the end of my sophomore year, I was taking three English classes. I was taking Roman history. I was taking Russian literature. I was taking, and I was taking one business class. I said, enough, right? So to me, uh, being a professor, which, which doesn't make pay a lot of money, as you know, I mean, the average college professor in the humanities makes less than a high school teacher by the time their careers. By the time we get to the retirement period, the public school teacher will make more than I do and will have a much better retirement than I am. So and much we, lower debt. And much course. lower debt. So for me, I'm, I'm wandering a little bit, but for me, the beauty of being able to teach that to other people is why I did it. Uh, It opened my eyes. It was a way of fighting back against materialism. It was a way of uh, overcoming the the creeping socialism that's about to swallow us up. It seems Uh, uh, this idea that there is only one world, only three dimensions, five senses, a world that never appealed to me, right? And uh, so, and religion, of course, plays a big role in that. But but the great stories of Western culture is where I became religious, if I can phrase it that way. Religion didn't lead me to the classics. The classics taught me to recognize a, a reality greater than the one that we can perceive with our material senses. And so in terms of success, I will say this, the one thing that's kept me in the classroom after all these years, I started college 35 years ago this year, That's an undergraduate, 35 years, and I've never spent one semester out of it since. Um, as a student and then as a teacher. That's, what, that's, why we're so, that's why we're so mistaken, professors, is we never have to account for a payroll. We never have to make sure somebody else is getting health insurance. We, we don't have to do any of that stuff. We, we, we're like children. So for me, I will say this, that I have many times thought to leave it, and I did not because I've been relatively successful in taking, you give me 75, 120, between 75 and 120 kids each semester. And these are kids who are completely materialist kids. These are kids who um, are, are completely awash in the here and now. They've lost their ability to think critically. They're not, they've not been given much of an education by the time they get to college. And I have a pretty good track record. I would say that every semester of that 75 to 120 kids, I can wake up 35 of them. I can wake up 40 of them. And that's a great number for me. It's the why they keep taking my classes. It's why at the universities, I taught at seven universities, with my worldview, you don't stay very long at one place. <laughs> but the reason I keep getting back in the business is because there are, is a huge resource of kids that keep defending my classes, keep defending me from the bogus charges the university wants to level against me, and, these, and oftentimes these are very liberal kids who are honest enough to say things to me like, well, I don't agree with you all the time but I am so pleased to be able to hear the other side of things. No one ever tells these kids the other side of things. There's, two, there's at least two sides to every story. You wanna, you wanna romanticize socialism? Colleges can do that, but no one, I mean, no one's telling them anymore what the other historical consequence of socialism is. So for me, I've said this to you on earlier programs you and I have done, I I now find it to be missionary work in a sense. Uh, And not just the idea that I'm trying to waken them up to God. I mean, I think in my worldview, my worldview only makes sense is at the end of it, there's an intelligent creator. That makes sense any other other way. So, but but th- I'm not trying to get them that far. I mean, that's like teaching these kids how to speed, uh, speed surf when they're barely learning how to crawl. I just want to open their eyes to the lies, if I may, of pure materialists and pure rationalists, the, 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 the calculated dishonesty of that kind of a worldview, to anybody who's lived anything like a reflexive life. Much of what you're told from that perspective is just so transparently false. And I've been very successful at it, and it keeps me going. It's, it's heartbreaking work in the sense that um, there's almost nobody who thinks like me. There's almost nobody I can have a conversation with at the university level. But when I go into the classroom and I close the door, For an hour, hour and a half, twice, two or three times a week, I can connect with those kids and show them something else. But you despair about that. That's that's 50 kids a year in a 13,000 seat university who, who maybe you can move a little bit. That's kind of what it is.
1: And the big picture stuff. Look, the individual contributions are fantastic and, you know, it's a ripple effect, it's a butterfly effect and all of that. But I actually first saw you doing a very passionate and powerful presentation. I've seen it both in person and online against Common Core and, of course, against secular humanism, against materialism, against socialism. What were you expecting in terms of the stuff that you have done outside of the joy of Shakespeare and Chaucer and so on? How has that played out relative to what you wanted or what you thought you could effect in the public square?
0: It's a complete failure. I mean, in the sense that uh, we, I've it, uh, almost 1,000 talks on Common Core and the rise of federal education, 48 states, 1,000 talks over five years. I've been testified before 20 different state legislatures. Uh, I've been it, done radio programs from China to Mexico and from England to Australia on this issue. And we've, we've lost every battle. The, the good thing for me is, Is that being a Christian, right, being uh, awakened to this through reading a lot of Christian literature, I knew that you're never gonna fix materialism. I I went into this knowing what, what Christ tells me in the Gospels is success for somebody like me is not measured in what happens here, it's what's measured in what happens next. So I never, I never felt, I never took myself too seriously. Even when I was out there and I was getting a lot of attention for the Common Core stuff, I knew even then that most of it wasn't going to go anywhere. In fact, almost all of my activism uh, outside of the university has been a complete and utter failure. Everything we warned about ten years ago is here. Everything we talked to, every Roman Catholic bishop I talked to, trying to get them to get it out of the Catholic schools, and they looked at me like I was crazy, now they destroyed the Catholic schools with this stuff. Every public school teacher I talked about, about what, what this is going to mean for you as a teacher, They've been completely shut down for what they're able to do. It's all here. And I feel a little bit like uh, Cassandra in the Iliad, right? Remember Cassandra, she was the prophetess. Uh, she, she was given the gift of prophecy. She could tell everybody the truth, but she was also cursed by no one would listen. So that uh, when it comes to public education, when it comes to that kind of stuff, I've been right all along with it. I have not, no modesty about that whatsoever. I can't think of a single thing I was wrong about. And yet it's here. And, and everybody who didn't believe me then, they will not acknowledge, they will not acknowledge that we said it was coming. It, it's staggering when you look at human beings' ability to, um, materialist, rationalist human beings, their inability to recognize or even to pretend to recognize what they've been told when they've been told it. It's honest now, it's here now, and they'll deny to the nth degree that this had anything to do with what we said before.
1: Well, and they are people who probably have great praise for science and criticize religion as being too dogmatic and not taking into account facts and reality and material truths and physics and so on. And these people are the same people who say that religion is dogmatic when they experience a fact counter. To their propaganda it's like you can see them willing it into non-existence in a reflexive manner and in fact counter narratives tend to reinforce the lies that they already believe so this is a big question right this is really really core to, to what i think we should talk about today which is you know obviously a negotiation but so why do it you say for the afterlife or for heaven okay so were you expecting to succeed and then have accommodated with a relative failure and the failure is not of you you put out herculean efforts in this realm the failure is of course you can lead a horse to water, blah, 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 or you can't make him drink. So the fault is not in you, or the fault is not in the stars. (laughs) The fault is in the people who have listened and chose to remain ignorant. But when you started this, was it with the goal of achieving a particular end which you didn't? Or it's like, I just want to go on record. I want to ease my conscience. I don't want to have any regret that I could have done more, and didn't? I
0: honestly came to, when I was struggling really hard to be a business major, and I was doing it because I thought that's what the world wanted, that's what the world needed. I had to, if I was gonna have a family one day, it was gonna be a different kind of family. If I was gonna you know, go out and into the world, I wasn't gonna live the life that I did, had lived before, a life of relative poverty, so to speak. I mean, we didn't, never slept out of the street, we never starved to death, but you know, in the material culture of America, you want better for yourself. So for me, it wasn't that. I um, honestly, I'll tell you what it was. By the time I got to my master's degree, I graduated from about middle way as a sophomore in college when all this changed for me. Um, I was taking all the business courses, but I was really reveling in all the humanities courses. And I remember writing an exam for a professor. And I was doing an essay exam, those little blue books that they used to give you. And wait, I Wait, wait,
1: sorry. You're giving me flashbacks here. <laughs> just a moment. I need to breathe into a paper bag or something. You're going to give me bad dreams. I think I'm prepared for tests. Okay, go ahead.
0: Well, I mean, I, uh, I was writing this essay, and it was completely 100% opposed to what I actually thought. I, and I didn't even realize I was doing it. I mean, the more I sat in a college classroom, the more I was just becoming them. And I'm writing this, and I'm thinking to myself, this is complete bullshit. I don't believe any of this stuff. And that's the moment that my eyes opened, and I recognized uh, by the time I, I, I dropped the business, I became an English major, I started taking the really hardcore classical books. This is, the, this, is the mid, this is the late 1980s, before you had identity politics classes, before even when you had liberal professors, they were oftentimes teaching conservative books. Right? I mean, uh, w- really remarkable. I mean, th- these were liberal professors when they were outside of the classroom, but they loved Milton as much as I did, even if they weren't Christians. Or they loved Dante well, as much as I did. Marxists
1: were in the university, but weren't the university. That's
0: right. Uh, that's a great way to phrase it. And so for me, what happened was I decided at that point, by the time I got into my master's degree two years later, my what I really wanted to do is save the West. I wanted to save these ideas. I knew I couldn't do it alone. I knew I wouldn't get to do it alone, but I wanted to... Make the case why you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, that you are not recognizing this radical uh, swing to the left. You are getting rid of many of the books that created the freedoms we have now. Uh, that you know, you're seeing that we're reaping this terribly, terribly reaping this now. This idea that we've taught for two generations, we've taught young school kids that America is only a racist country, that there is no, that the Constitution was written for white men, that there is no progress, that America is a wicked, evil culture. They believe it now, right? And I, I saw that. And I knew that's where we were going to end up. I said ten years ago, I said this. Wait a minute, guys. If you pull down all the Confederate flags. For what you think is a good reason, I get it that that's associated with slavery. But if that's all that flag means is slavery and nothing else, then you're going to have to pull down the American flag too. Because it flew over slave states a lot longer than the Confederate flag did. And that's the attitude, right? This, this, and my, I tell my university kids all the time, I asked them just the other day, these are juniors and seniors fit to graduate, giving me that same speech now. This is all done for white men. These books are all just white privilege. This is, I ask them the question, why? If, the West, if Western culture is what your teachers tell you it is, evil, homophobic, bigoted, irredeemable, how come human rights, civil rights, women's rights, gay rights? End of slavery. Tra- right. How'd that happen here? Why is it that black and brown skin people, if we're as bad as you say we are, why are they dying to get here? And I had one smart-ass kid say to me just the other day, well, the way we, we, we market ourselves is this, this, this incredibly, you know, uh, exceptional culture. They get here and they're dis- disappointed. I said, how disappointed? Name, do they ever go back? Well, no. I said, do they ever get here? I mean, because you, you're the one, I said to the kid, you're the one who are underestimating black and brown-skinned people. You're basically saying that once they get here, they're too stupid to see how much we hate them too stupid to realize that they had it better in Mexico. right? He didn't Western know what to say.
1: Yeah, Western countries statistically don't even show up in the top 20 of most racist countries by right. any objective measure. So, but, but this is something that people, I always try to reduce things to a personal level because people understand things, abstract things at a much more personal level. And it's really, really valid. I mean, morality, it's great to have in the abstract, but you've actually got to do something with it in your life. And if anyone is out there, listen to this, right? If you've ever been in a verbally abusive relationship, you will understand exactly what's happening with colleges and the media in America. So in a verbally abusive relationship, which is an abusive relationship, in order to exploit you, they have to break down your sense of pride, your sense of self-esteem, your sense of value, your sense of achievements, and that way you end up demoralized not liking yourself, and then you're open for exploitation. In other words, if you can convince someone who's got money that their money was stolen and, and it was uh, on the black market or it was profits from blood diamonds or genocide or something like that, then, you know, they're a lot less likely to fight hard to hold on to it because they feel guilty and bad. And this is the way that people in abusive marriages and relationships, they get exploited because they just get, to- nothing they do is good. Every achievement they have is unearned and uh, they owe everyone else everything. And that's how they get plundered and exploited. And the American population, the Western population as a whole, is uh, are the victims of verbally abusive relationships coming out of the media where everything you do is wrong, everything you have was stolen, everything that you own was pillaged, and you can't ever do anything right? And it's, it, it's simple, straight up verbal abuse, except, you know, the, the world's uh, um, homeless shelter, so the world's abuse shelter used to be america and now there's not that many places left to go to get out of these verbally abusive relationships because you know, look in the past right the verbally abusive relationship of slavery you're nothing you're a piece of property the verbally abusive uh, relationship of, of being a serf uh, you're nothing uh, you're 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 just like a piece of livestock you should be bought and sold with the land you have no value all of this predation requires on the destruction of people's sense of pride and value and when you go around doing that, oh yeah, you will, well, you'll get a couple of things. Number one, you'll be able to exploit people in the short term, but you get some Lorena Bar- Bobbitt blowback. It's kind of an older reference uh, for the woman who who hacked off her husband's penis because she claimed he, he abused her for, for many years. So you'll get that kind of blowback. And then the demoralized people will say, oh, gosh, well, if me having anything, if me creating anything is bad, is, moral, is immoral, is evil, I just exploit, I guess I'll stop doing that. And then you kill the goose that lays the golden egg and things get pretty bad, you know, late Roman Empire style quickly.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's a brilliant way of phrasing it. You and I had a conversation probably five years ago already about culture. One of the first ones we did was cultural Marxism. And we were sort of explaining this as it was unfolding. They'd already had deep roots. But now you're seeing five years later the triumph, right? We've, I, th- I do think the premise of our conversation is right. We've crossed a boundary now what happened in the last few years really since the, the the election of Donald Trump which was perhaps you know one the last one great hope of staving off some of this whatever you say about Trump he took on those bogeymen he said he just maga just the the way that maga drives them crazy a stupid little red hat with make america great again just makes them go apoplectic because he's simply pointing back to the fact that undoubtedly Western culture is remarkable. I, I, I don't think there's a culture. I mean, you, you study history. I don't think there's a single culture in the, in the history of the world anywhere in the world that is as self-loathing as this one is. And the irony about that to me is there's also never been a culture in the history of the world that's accomplished as much as we have. I mean, it's almost like a complete disproportion, a, de- de- a, de- a dereliction of reality. The greater the achievements of Western culture, the more we have to despise this. My mistake no, but is... It's called but it's
1: called leveling. Leveling, it, it's a it very, is! a very, very clear it psychological is. phenomenon, it right? Is. Where if, if your brother is doing better than you are, then you have a great temptation. It's a really devilish temptation. Now, it is both a stimulant and a temptation. So your brother's doing better than you are, maybe he makes more money, he's better educated, got a nicer family, better... whatever it is, right? So you have two choices. Well, I guess you have three. One, you can just live with it, which very few people do because it kind of eats away at us Cain and Abel style, right? The second is you can say, wow, if he can do it, boy, oh boy, I can do it too. And I'm going to get out there and I'm going to go to night school and I'm going to take risks and I'm going to sit at his knee and learn his wisdom and uh, which, you know, a certain percentage, which will probably remain in the single digits, decide to do. And then, of course, your third choice, which is the really devilish choice is I'm just going to pull him down. I'm just now for other cultures i mean the the legacy of the west is is glorious and i say this you know i grow, grew up in the west but i try to you know this is the voltaire argument right like what if you were just a space alien or you know he used of course somebody from the new world and he found he, this is way he pointed out some of the absurdities as you know in french society was to pretend to be somebody from the new world like an indigenous population in north america coming over and trying to understand french society so just coming in from outside, from Alpha Centauri, from Betelgeuse, where you come in and you say, okay, so, okay, you guys invented the zero. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, this is a, okay, telescope. That's pretty cool. Okay. So what do you guys got? Oh, okay. So you've got philosophy. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. (laughs) That's pretty important. Uh, you have universal rights. So not an in-group tribal preference for morality, but a universal morality, not thou shalt not kill thy fellow tribal members, but thou shalt not kill as a universal morality. Well, that's That's pretty good. Okay, so really cool architecture, fantastic art. Universal human rights, emancipation of women. You are the culture that single-handedly ended slavery around the world, including the fact that um, England was paying the debt off for 150, finally finished paying off the debt for slavery in the 1980s. Uh, That's pretty good. And uh, oh, you invented the free market pretty much in its modern form. Modern science, well, that's pretty important. Modern medicine, facts, evidence, double-blind controlled studies, well, that's pretty good, boom, 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 right? So I, you know, and I admire the culture that I grew up in. I can't say that I'm proud of it, In like it wasn't me. I'm trying to add to it in my own way, as, as I think everyone should. But I can't imagine what it's like to come from another culture and say, look at this culture and say, okay, so what did we do? Um, Okay, well, um, it's bright burning. There was, you know, I mean, the Muslim slave trade was 20 times that of the North American slave trade and still goes on in some countries. That's, you know, and again, you can look at the dark spots of the West and compare it with the light spots of, of other cultures, which there definitely are dark spots in the West and light spots and wonderful spots in other cultures, other civilizations, other religions. But in aggregate, what is the world doing when looking at the glories of the West? Are they saying, wow, what one man can do? Another man can do what one woman can do, another woman can do. Let us try to surmount it. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Hey, I'm happy if some other culture decides to surmount the West and gives me jetpacks from wherever. That's wonderful. I, I'd love it if somebody else built a passenger spaceship to Mars so I could bounce around weighing 60 pounds. That would be fantastic. But in general, in gen- and of course the communist culture had been so destructive, they can't compete with the productivity of capitalism. Censorship cannot compete with the excellence of free speech. And the mainstream media can't compete with you and I. And we know that because, you know, you and I talking heads, tiny budgets. uh, I was regularly pulling more viewers than national broadcasters in many Western countries until right until they were like, oh, yeah, but but he is a Nazi. So eliminate him until you go back to the great reset. reset. You are greatly reset. We we can we can go get get that ad revenue because people don't understand mainstream media talking about us. is like Coke talking about Pepsi if Pepsi is really successful and cool and moral. But um, so. Rather than say, let us take and extend and further beautify and universalize the principles that Western philosophy and culture and economics and science have generated, let's overleap them. Let's take that as a challenge. What they've done is they've got old Tonya Harding on us, right, which is if you can't compete, uh, well, just take a bat to your opponent's legs and then consider yourself the victor.
0: Just before we got on the air, I just happened to see this. It it makes your point perfectly. It's on, I think it's on all the, it's like the Blaze's got the story right now. A Chinese sociologist today said that before it's all said and done, we Chinese, 1.4 billion Chinese who rise in the morning and urinate, who go to bed at night and defecate, who live all day long eating and sleeping and thinking, we will drive the United States to death. That's it, right? We will, 1.4 billion of us will drive you to death. Why, and what is the, where would China be right now without all that stolen Western technology? I mean, we'd still be dealing with a third world country. China hasn't invented technology; China's stolen it in most cases. Uh, it wasn't true of the, well, the same world. thing
1: was true. The same thing was true of the communist countries. That's that exactly all them, right. I mean, just look at the Soviets with the bombs through the Rosenbergs, right? I mean, they just. I remember reading a book many years ago: uh, East minus West equals zero, which is you just look at the communist countries. All they did was espionage and pillage and industrial spying and so on to to get these uh, any kind of productivity until they just couldn't anymore.
0: And, you know, it's one of the things, this is, you know, speaking of Nazis, at least you can say of the Germans that they were producing and creating. They were just they were pushing technology, right? And I would argue that that is as evil as fascism was. Maybe evil is at least as, as evil as communism. This weird notion we have in the modern world that communism, that, that the really, the the, national socialism was the worst human beings can get. I'm not quite sure about that. I mean, uh, that was they were to say that the communists at their best were vastly better than the germans at their worst I think it's odd to say it, I mean the horrors of the Holocaust cannot be denied but we don't ever want to talk about the, the murders of the communist Chinese and, or, or what, they, or what uh, the imperial Japanese, we never teach that to our kids uh, what was going on in their experimental rooms or, or the uh, long history of the Soviet Union, what they were, how they were torturing people for quote unquote knowledge, not to again let the Nazis off the hook but just to point out that the, the history of communism is as bloody if not more bloody but most of it's covered up and the not the, the, the communists were killing their own people right the communists were murdering their own people and but when you think about at the end of World War II, it was a real race to see who was going to split the atom, wasn't it? It was a it was a real race to who would get the first jet airplane. I think the Germans actually did it. It was too late to help them, but y- you can see what the Germans were doing inside Western culture and where they got their their spark and their emphasis. Whereas we were the ones, if we weren't lending the communists, we weren't lending Stalin, lend leasing them all sorts of tanks and planes. What would they be, right? How would they be able to continue doing what they were able to do? So uh, e- even in the even if you're you're measuring the horrors of Western culture and non-Western culture, or in this case, communism, th- th- to, to suggest in some way, So the question I make to my students all the time uh, is, who's the greatest killer of the 20th century? And they all say Hitler. I mean, none of them immediately think of Stalin, who was much better at it, and had oh, much man, lo- and, had, and they had much more time to do it in, You know, it's, this, it's, I don't, again, I, th- we, if we told the tale of history correctly, And this is one of the things that I think is most remarkable about Western culture. Unlike most of those cultures, we look at our own warts. I guarantee you Chinese students aren't learning about uh, the, the bad things in Chinese history. I'm reasonably sure that Russian students in today's so- in today's former Soviet Union are learning the real things that went on with the Bolsheviks. I'm pretty sure in American schools, our kids are learning about American slavery at the expense of almost everything else.
1: We have taken well, this, our- is, well, this is why, sorry to interrupt, but this okay. is why the media is constantly beating this drumbeat of yeah. war against Russia, because Russia has looked very closely into the origins of Bolshevism and the- marxists in the mainstream media are enraged at that and right. constantly want to discredit russia which might accidentally and has occasionally spilled the beans about the origins of communism and it's a it's a huge problem and this is what i i've done for many many years this is all the way back to when i was in grad, an undergraduate is you know people would talk to me about uh, the evils of capitalism or they would talk to me about the evils of national socialism you know and there's evils within capitalism because there's bad people in a good environment and the evils of national socialism are nothing to be Taken lightly. I mean, it was one of the greatest regimes of death in, in the history of man. But I would say, okay, what does the word holodomor mean? And you maybe meet one person in 100 who'd even heard of the term. Crickets. And it's like, to me, it's like, this is just one of these basic, are you propagandized questions? Do you know, well, what is the rape of Nanking? Uh, what, what is, um, uh, who were the biggest uh, concentration camp owners uh, and, and managers in the 20th century? Um, how many people died? under Mao's uh, starvation program. But the Holodomor question is one of these just basically, if you don't know the Holodomor, hey, nobody has to. It's not like it's a requirement for living or anything like that, but I'm just not interested in what people have to say about history if they're simply being fed this conveyor belt of one-sided information, and uh, it just means that they've just yeeted themselves out or disqualified themselves from any kind of really objective perspective on human history.
0: The sad thing about that, though, is these people are now in charge of the universe. Right. Uh, The Mm -hmm. this you ask the average university professor or they might have they may have heard of Holdemore, but they certainly don't equate that to what was going on. And so the problem that we have now as a culture, and you asked me this question to begin the begin the talk. What I what I what I overestimated as going through all this, what I overestimated is the degree to which facts and proof would turn the day. I, you know, as a, I actually thought naively well into, well into my first university job. I was, I've taught at seven universities. I first got a full-time job at a university in 1997, 23 years ago, and at se- seven since. And so I remember even halfway through my few years there, absolutely convinced that if I could just show people what the truth of the record was, they'd see it. But it's this denial, right? I mean, uh, we have universities full of people who could probably tell you what the Hold'emore was in theory. But will completely disregard it. They'll talk. They can talk to you about the the rape of Nanking, but that pales in comparison to what Western culture has done. And so, (laughs) I get it. Pales. The pales. The big mistake (laughs) for me was believing because I I didn't know enough about communism when I was younger, because that's what happens, right? Uh, You you go all in and convincing them of the first great lie. In this case, the first great lie is that America's irredeemable, because at that point, once you've convinced them of that, there's nothing you can throw at them from history that's going to unlodge that. right? And America's evil because it's so copious. Uh, we, we, I've done programs, I've had pub- public published articles on this. My university kids, they't most of them believe that America created slavery. Eighty percent of my university kids cannot name another slaveholding state in the history of the world, eight out of 10.
1: And I have America got- had slavery for what a grand total for about 84 years. That's right, from the and- founding of America to the Civil War. America had the least number of slaves, just about, in all many more yeah. slaves went to Central and South America than to America. It had a slavery for the least amount of slavery for the shortest amount of time in all of human history and fought a big bloody war with the sensible aim of ending slavery as did the british empire spend massive amounts of blood and treasure to intercept slave ships buy off the slaves bribe people to end the worldwide scourge of slavery but you know as the old saying goes in business no good deed goes unpunished and the fact that the only culture that had slaves for the shortest amount of time and worked to end slavery alone in all of human culture is the only god sorry it's the only culture Still blamed for slavery right. is woefully predictable to those who know what abusive relationships are all about.
0: There has never been a there was never any time in American history when more than five percent of homeowners actually had slaves. I mean, the other statistic that that blows me away, in 1776, I asked my students this too, what percentage of the world lived under some form of slavery, chattel slavery or or other form of slavery? About 85%, 88% actually. So when you think about that, that in 1776, 88% of the world's population lived under some form of indentured or or chattel slavery, it's a pretty staggering number. Uh, The idea, And it's primarily been cleaned up in the West, like you said. And so we... When my university kids, they're, so, they're serious about this. I asked them to name one slaveholding culture in the history of the world, including Christian and some Jewish kids. You'd think they'd be able to say Pharaoh, right? The Egyptians, they, they can't do it. What, what is so decimating about the way we're teaching kids is y- what you they think
1: Moses was fleeing exactly. <laughs>
0: They don't. They have, most of them haven't read it. Most of them haven't even read it. Or they don't think about it in the same way. Or it's so long ago it's a fairy tale. Uh, you know, that's the other thing I would point out, apropos to our title, our topic here. When I started teaching at a college 20, 23 years ago, I was teaching as a grad student somewhere like 27 years. Um, at Purdue University, rural Indiana. All of my kids then, most of my kids were first-generation kids, a lot of rural kids but they all knew the basic stories. I mean, they, they knew the basic narrative of American history. They, they didn't have a lot of facts. They, they've read, they, they certainly knew what the basic Christ, the story of Christianity was. Even if they weren't Christian, they knew the basic tenets. And those kids were, they, they were in college for the first time, and unilaterally they felt, they felt bad about what they didn't know. They knew they didn't know things. They, they, they wanted to learn things. Fast forward 27 years, the ignorance is even worse. But now the attitude is, not knowing that stuff makes me woke. Not knowing white history, not knowing the history of religion or the history of Christianity, not knowing what the founding fathers really were about, I'm morally superior by not having studied that stuff. My mind hasn't been tainted. I know the real story. I know the real story that America is evil. And I will not let your history, which now all history except revisionist history, is sus- suspect right the traditional narratives of america is exceptional all that stuff now it's jingoism it's white supremacy our kids would believe that the only thing they're allowed to believe is that it's an irrede- irredeemably horrible and at the minute they start to deviate that they're starting to separate the white kids out for white supremacist training, right? Cultural sensitivity. And the black kids get their seminars and Black Lives Matter, and how uh, while, while they were building so- societies in Egypt, white people were hanging out of caves in frozen Europe. I mean, this is, this is what the, the, the worst aspect of the 70s, the whole black Athena movement, right? It's, it's, watching them, their heads spin. Go back to the 1970s when they were to say, well, you know, Uh, African-Americans were created Egypt, right? The the first great human civilization while Europeans were still living in caves. Okay, I'm more than willing to accept that, although to suggest that a sub-Saharan African and a Northern African is the same thing might be a little bit offensive to Arabs. You wanna go that way, go that way. But then when you point out to them that also you have to recognize that makes you the first great slave-holding state in human history. That they can't process. That's a lie, right? Like like those pyramids were all built by happy Egyptians who got together and hauled, spent their whole short lives hauling huge stone blocks to, for, to create Pharaoh's dream. Like all that was done sympathetically.
1: Right. So regarding the sort of life, life work stuff, right? Are we, are we in a post-Christian? And, and to me, post-Christian means post-moral. And I'll sort of get into my reasons behind that. And, and I say this with somewhat bitter Ashes in the mouth kind of regret, because that's kind of been my job so i'll I'll tell you a little anecdote here It's really really powerful for me, and I'll tell you sort of what I think it means to the possibility that reason's going to save the day so Many years ago, I was at a park with my daughter, she was very little, she was about four or whatever, so I was playing around with her because you can't just let a four year old go to in the park right anyway, so standing in the park with you know some babies in prams were these these two women and they were discussing, and I could hear sort of very clearly. They were discussing um, h- how to get free stuff from the government, and it was a very calculated. You could almost expect them to pull out a spreadsheet on a tablet or something like. That. It was very, very calculated. It was very well. You know, if you apply for this, then they will give you an avenue to that program. Now, it gets you free dental, and your kids you never have to pay for uh, their braces. They never have to pay for their dental stuff. And then, if you apply for this, you get rent subsidies, or sometimes you could even get free rent. And it was just like. And they were really just back and forth, you know, like how to get all all the free stuff in the known universe. Now, you could, of course, make the case and it's a good moral case that by running to the government for money, the government is going to force other people to pay for them against their will or is going to borrow against their children's future or is going to print money and destroy everyone's savings, like all these kinds of things. Right. And so I was listening to this conversation, fascinated and horrified, as any moral examination of the moral world (laughs) tends to give you that sort of feeling. And I was really sitting there thinking, okay, so these, and I've done some research in, into this kind of stuff, right? So, you know, a woman with, with two kids, single mom, she gets like the equivalent of seventy to $80,000 worth of income uh, from, from the government, uh, free, so to speak, right? That's uh, quite a lot of money right there, right? So I imagine thinking to these women, you go up to these women, you say, eh, you know, ladies, got to tell you, um, what you're talking about is chillingly anti-empathetic it's not even non-empathetic it's anti-empathetic because all the people have been forced to pay for all of your bad decisions and there were no husbands around they sort of mentioned this being single moms and all of that it's pretty bad now let's just say they're at the low end and they're already getting fifty thousand dollars worth of goodies tax-free from the government every year or they would have to earn fifty thousand to to make to make whatever they get right okay so let's say fifty thousand dollars let's say you invest a big sum of money at 5%. So what, how much money do you need to get $50,000 a year? Well, you need a million dollars, right? And you get a million dollars, 5% a year, and there is, there is your income, right? So basically they won the lottery and they got a million dollar annuity that's gonna pay them $50,000 a year or something like that. So what you're doing is you're walking up to people and say, you should not cash this winning lottery ticket for a million dollars. Because it's going to have some negative consequences down the road, economically or whatever, right? Well, you could say you could stand in front of any convenience store and anybody who's coming in saying, I won the lottery, I won the lottery, you say, hmm, you know, really not cash that. The government doesn't actually have any money and it doesn't allow competition and it, it prints the money and it's, not, well, just, you know, they're just going to end up with a lottery winner sized hole through your chest as they go in to get their free stuff, right? And when it comes to having a moral conversation with someone, it's really unfair because what we have, the high road, the hard road, the hardship road. You go to the women and say, you know, but it's good for your kids if they see you working. Or it's good for your kids if you get a husband who's going to take care of you and the kids and all that stuff. And, and what they'll say is, OK, well, let's say I go get a job. I make 15 bucks an hour because I'm not that skilled. And the extra cost of taxes knocks me down to like 10 bucks an hour, which means I'm making about 1600 bucks a month. Quality daycare for two kids, maybe about 1500 bucks a month. So you want me to go to work for 100 dollars a month. 62 cents an hour. You want me to miss my kids, to go and have all the stress and difficulty of having a career for 60 odd cents an hour. You are insane. Now, how are mere words? It's one thing if you say to someone, oh, you know, you're smoking, that's bad for you, you get sick or whatever it is, right? Okay, well, smoking costs money and it does interfere with your health even before you get sick. But what if smoking feels fantastic There are no perceivable ill health effects, and the government is paying you a million dollars to be a smoker. (laughs) And then you go up to people and say, hey, you should quit smoking. No smoking fees bad for you. Oh my gosh. I mean, how how are we supposed to compete with the helicopter of free stuff and all of the moral and philosophical and cultural corruption that tends to reinforce those values? I mean, I can talk people in and out of a whole bunch of stuff. I just can't talk people out of cash and get a winning lottery ticket. And that I think has been the sum total of the moral work, I want to speak for you, but the moral work that I've been doing, yeah, it's helped some individuals for sure, but it really has to be about preventing mistakes. Uh, you know, it's sort of like if you're having a heart attack, there's no point calling you a nutritionist. The nutritionist will say, well, maybe I could have helped you 10 years ago <laughs> or 20 years ago, but right now you gotta call Yara. And I sort of feel like we're the nutritionists and society's having a heart attack and we're just not on the speed dial.
0: Well, like like you, um, it's much easier to anatom- anatomize the corpse than it is to pump life back into a dead body, but I, one, of the things I, one of the things that I've gone over w- with you time and time again in all of our conversations is, God aside, what drew me to a Christian understanding of the universe was its em- emphasis on the individual, I mean, uh, as opposed to the collective. Uh, you know, these girls, these young ladies were sitting there talking collectively. I, when I first moved here to this job I have, and that was only about eight years ago, I was having some money problems. My wife needed some um, extraordinary healthcare. So I got a part-time job working the third shift at a quick trip. Uh, so I was a professor at the university, and for three years I worked pretty much six to eight hours a night overnight doing this. Uh, now, again, I didn't refuse to say I didn't take any money. I didn't, I didn't sign her up for any programs. We didn't try to get her on any kind of, of benefit or anything. I did that. I took another job. And the reason I did that is because I felt that. I felt that this was a, in, in this country you could find ways of doing it without having to become a burden to other people or take other people's money. And I would sit there the whole time I was working there. I'd have kids, 19-year-old kids come into the store at 1 in the morning. And they, they worked for six months at a construction job. They're 19 years old. They're living in their mom's basement. Mom feeds them, gives them free food and board. Mom lets her drive her spare car. This kid comes in with five of his buddies. He has a, a food stamp card for $2,500 a month. $2,500 a month because he was a single guy who, you know, he was working and then he got, he got unemployed. And so he's, all his needs are being met by his mom. And they were literally loading up. I mean, hundreds of dollars of beer, beef jerky and Pringles and soda pop with this 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 hundred dollar benefit. And I'm thinking to myself. Another time, a young woman came in. My anecdote syrupa, rivals yours. Did said the same thing, She's griping about you know she had two kids and she was pregnant again. Obviously, those kids were with different daddies, right? And she was pregnant again, and she was griping about how little she was getting. How she had, I think, uh, thirty-two hundred dollars a year, a month, thirty-two hundred dollar card right, that she always paid with, because I would see it when it would go down, and so she was griping that that wasn't enough to live on, and I, and so we were hiring, all right, it was, was, at the time, this was $12 an hour, but it had benefits and everything, I handed her, I knew it was going to be trouble, handed her an application, and said, hey, we're looking for people, she said exactly what your, your, your young women would have said, she said, you expect me to work 40 hours a week to make a couple hundred dollars a month more than I'm making now, she's it's unbelievable she said that you she, in fact she told me this is what blew me away she said i got pregnant the third time because my benefits when you've got more than two kids they more than double so by having yeah. that third kid she said i don't just get for three i'll get the equivalent of six so she got pregnant as a way of of maximizing her benefits i i didn't know what to do and what's the difference between the two situations right i mean i i felt guilty about in a land of opportunity not maximizing my choices. All right? I'm married. I but know that's what the I,
1: golden rule. But that is this that, is you as and, a good Christian saying yes. treat others as you would like to be treated yourself. And, and you would like it if other people worked rather than had their perbiscy so to speak in your wallet yes. from noon Till midnight, right? And, and it, so that it, that's the empathy it is. that Christianity teaches. That to is. think of your to love your neighbor as yourself, to, to the golden rule of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, or the Kantian imperative of can the principle of your behaviour be universalized, which is right. a pretty powerful thing. And of course, if if you were to say to this woman, So everybody should quit working and have babies to get government money, the first thing she would say is what? Everyone else no, is doing that, it. That's not good. Well, well no 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 you can't do that somebody's got to pay taxes if everybody's taken from the government the whole system collapses so she relies upon your integrity in order for the scam to work and so she has to recognize your virtue your pride your refusal to do what she's doing is the only reason she can do it at all and that is the opposite of empathy is relying on the virtue of others to be to be forcibly put in the service of your own vices and irresponsibilities recognizing it's sort of like how the lion recognizes the zebra and recognizes the health of the zebra and recognizes the speed of the zebra and recognizes which way the zebra is going to turn and run. It doesn't do that. Like it's, It empathizes, so to speak, with the zebra, right? Like, you got to put yourself in the mind of the zebra, says the ace lion hunter to his children. you got to, you got to be the zebra. You've got to think like the zebra. You've got to inhabit, possess the zebra which sounds a little bit like empathy, but you're doing it in the same way that a torturer studies the human body, not because he wants to heal it, because he wants to make it hurt as much as he possibly can
0: and I believe, and I really do believe that the what, what leads to that mindset is entitlement, right? It's an entitlement mindset that's predicated on a collective view of humanity. We don't matter as individuals. We're all part of a collective. I'm just getting my share, right? I happen to be the young mother without a, a husband, so there's a collect, collectively I belong in this pool. I deserve money. And by having another baby, regardless of whether, calculatedly having another baby, I am getting more of the collective money. I, I think that we, before we got there, before we got to, the, to a universal acceptance of this, we had to change a way, the way that, you know, two, almost 2,000 years of Christian thinking ingrained in kids was morphed overnight over the last 100 years into something very different. And if you look at the, the philosophical model behind Christianity and the philosophical model behind communism, to me that explains it perfectly, Right. What does want? Communism want? Communism wants. It wants a universal nanny state. It promises you you give us all your power, a small monopoly, a, a small oligarchy, right? Give us all your power. We'll tell you what to do, and we'll take care of you, cradle to grave. You won't have to pay for anything. You won't we're not we don't tell you you're not going to accomplish anything either, but we're gonna take care of all your needs. You give up to the collective state, your individuality, we then will entitle you. It's why the Brits so desperately love the NHS. I mean, you talk to a Brit, they'll gripe and complain about how our Canadian They'll gripe, and I've never met a Canadian—not one—who didn't gripe about how long it took and how I can't get this. And by the time I get this service, I'm going to be dead. I heard it over and over again. You, at one point, you had the Prime Minister of Canada fly down to Florida to get a heart valve operation that it would have taken him months in Canada to get. But but then, when you say you point out to them, well, maybe the problem is with national health care, they erupt on you like, "How dare you threaten my free my entitlement?" Even when the entitlement ends up killing them. As long as they don't have to pay for it that's that's it's impossible to shake that
1: you're going to pay one way or the other that's right so the the post moral thing okay so this is an argument i had this interview with dennis prager many years ago where he was talking about you cannot get the ought without the god you cannot get the morality without the god the laws of physics operate independent of consciousness and this is you know the big poised breath in america that's occurring about the election at the moment is people are saying, well, wait a minute, laws were broken, machines were connected to the internet, chain of custody was lost, data has been destroyed, evidence has been destroyed, people weren't allowed to oversee, the law has been broken. And now people, of course, are beginning to realize what many of us have realized in the past, man, the laws of man are not the laws of physics, man. (laughs) You know, you, you take a, you take an orange uh, and you drop it to Galileo style off the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It's going to fall. You don't need a a, a, um, a warrant. You don't need a judge to approve. It's just going to happen. It operates independent of human consciousness. But laws. Well, I've said this many years ago. Um, laws are opinions with guns. Right. And and they are enforced selectively. We know this from social media where people like me get kicked off for not, not even any explanation, whereas other people can post the most appalling stuff and and get uh, featured and, and uh, interviewed and so on. So the laws say, oh, but well, they broke the law. And it's like, okay. And it still requires human beings to have the moral will to enforce those laws against increasingly staunch and dangerous opposition. You know, if, if, they, if it comes down to a judge trying to certify Trump as being the president of the United States, then it may in fact come down to Clarence Thomas saying, to Joe Biden who ran the whole Anita Hill lynching of Clarence Thomas back in the day. It may come down to Clarence Thomas. In a true biblical cycle of of vengeance, (laughs) it may come back to Clarence Thomas determining whether the guy who hunted him with, with Anita Hill actually becomes president or not. But imagine how much pressure that judge is going to be under, and is that judge gonna stand? Is that judge gonna fold? Are they gonna go for his family? I mean, this is a lot of feral stuff out there at the moment in the realm of politics, why I'm not really there. It's not a philosophical place to be at the moment. It's a legal place to be. But the laws without God, I mean, I knew this was coming, I knew this was coming, I knew this was coming. And so one of the first, the second article I ever wrote as a minor public intellectual was, you know, proving libertarian morality. How do we get to the non aggression principle? How do we defend property rights? Because it was easy to see that the religious justifications weren't going to hold for a lot of the population. For a lot of the population they will, and I respect that enormously, but, for a lot of the more secular population or, you know, the correlation between growing up without a father and being skeptical of God is unfortunate and in my case maybe even be motivational. But that's why I wrote Universally Preferable Behavior, A Rational Proof of Secular Ethics. It's why I went on a speaking tour to promote it. It's why I did like thirty or forty or fifty shows and debates and presentations and PowerPoints to make this case. It's why I give the book gave the book away. For free and it's been downloaded millions of times and uh, unfortunately you know i had people like david gordon from mises and and other people were just really blocking this and trying to discredit it in ways i don't exactly know why i thought it was it's a very good proof and it's very interesting approach to the question of ethics but the reason i did that was because you cannot drive people out of the church if you've got no place for them to go because man, it's a harsh world out there. It is a Nietzschean will-to-power world particularly between countries between cultures There's a lot of in-group preference out there. That is a lot of mine against thine And if you're not going to give people any universal values with which to battle the increasing tribalism within society uh, then you're driving them in a hailstorm in raising raining frozen frogs in lightning in a, a truly revelation-style storm of the end times, you're taking them out of the only shelter they got, which is a church. You're driving them out into the woods and you're saying, good luck with the bears, good luck with the lightning, good luck with the hail. You've got to give people some place to go. And I worked very hard to do that. I, you know, The theory has taken a lot of hits. Uh, I think it stood the test of time. I've debated it countless times and I've never found a, um, a counter to it. So I stand by that edifice of, of secular morality, which is great. You know me and 12 other people managed to find refuge from the collapsing churches but that's the one thing that was deeply 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 shocking for me and i'm i'm still sort of reverberating you know like the 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 fat guy with the cannon going to his belly i'm still sort of rippling and reverberating that reality about the secular community about the atheist community because i thought my gosh they're gonna come at this theory like a, a man dying of thirst comes to a bottle of Evian you know, Evian spelled backwards is naive. That's kind of what (laughs) I was, right? Because what happened was I came with, uh, hey, I've got secular ethics solved, big, the the Holy Grail. I got the secular ethics solved people. And I would think they'd be like, oh, I don't, didn't want to be elevated. I'm just like, yay, you know, this is, this is really great. And I don't know if you've seen, there's a little bit, it's a funny video on, on the internet. uh, And it's a bunch of goths and they turn around the corner and there's um, a bunch of Catholic priests coming towards them and they literally turn and free, and flee. And that's what it, I'm coming forward with secular ethics to the godless community who've never solved the problem of ethics. And I come with secular ethics, universal ethics to the godless community. And I literally was like, it was like a cross to a vampire, uh, except vampires flee from it. And they just basically attacked and, and attacked and attacked. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Isn't this, doesn't this solve the problem of ethics? Isn't that kind of, no, 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 turns out, funny story, turns out they were just the tip of the spear to crack the church so communism could get in. Turns out there's no interest in ethics whatsoever. Right. No, in fact, counter interest in ethics. Because well that, I was sitting there saying, oh, here's something that can blunt your attack upon universal ethics. And I'm like, well, we'll take the spear from the church and throw it at you about 4,000 times for now. We'll go back to the church when you're down. But that was the whole progress and process. And that was... Uh, I'm still processing it. Just yeah, in case you can't tell. Well, I'm it's, it's the, what, they could,
0: what they couldn't abide was that it was universal, because yeah. whether you know it or not, and I think as you've as you've grown over the last ten, fifteen years, you see that as well, right? That it doesn't work without God. That that the when you talked about a universal ethics without God, the universal was kind of a giveaway, right? Uh, you didn't have to make that last step. I think I, I've read. Well, I've read it. I think it's very coherent. I think it's exactly right. But it does give away the gap. I think. I think personally, what they could not abide was if you push it one step further you've you've allowed universals, which means there's no reason you wouldn't allow God. And when you think about...
1: Oh, so for them, it was a gateway to God whether rather they, than a repudiation of socialism.
0: Yep. Whether whether they recognize it or not, that because when I read it, that was my first thought. And I had I that... I really,
1: really need to remember to bring my helmet to these conversations, <laughs> you know, just well, to-
0: <laughs> This is why Dostoevsky is my favorite, favorite writer, because I don't think there's any writer in, in, in human history who saw that. Uh, you know, if you think about the Grand Inquisitor scene with Ivan, what is the, what is the Grand Inquisitor saying to Jesus? G- For those of you, who, we should do this really soon. It's, will, just, yeah, it's, just, sure. just, it's just 20 pages out of that 800-page novel. But in the story, uh, Jesus comes to 16th He comes back to 16th century Spain and he walks through the space. Nobody knows how. He just reappears. He starts healing people. He starts working the miracles, so much so that the local priest is convinced it's Jesus. And the first thing the priest does is arrest Jesus and throw him in prison, where the grand inquisitor comes and visits him. And the grand inquisitor says, you fool, you fool, you fool. Why did you come back? Don't you know that what you offered them was too much for them. You offered them individuality. You predicated their own salvation on their own choice. They don't want that. Do you not know that we, the church, have spent 1,600 years correcting your mistake? We give them food when they're hungry. We take care of them. We let them, think that, we let them think that their sins are forgiven because we somehow have the power to forgive them. What they don't want is you. You underestimate, he says to Jesus, you underestimate how people really don't want to be free. That freedom is a burden. Freedom of choice is a burden. How quickly will human beings give their freedom to the nearest benevolent dictator for security? All right. Oh, it's like we're talking <laughs> about COVID Amazing. <laughs> well, in 1920, right? The, the there were consequences to the let's just say the uh, expanding the vote across genders. There were consequences, right? We know factually that one gender is much more security-driven than others. Men tend to be more independent, lone wolf types. Women tend to be more security creatures. Um, am I surprised in the last exactly 100 years uh, we've moved much more to a nanny state than to a, a a a more better construct of individual liberty? No, at all. I'm not. I'm completely aware historically where that began to come from. But when I go back to the, the question that you raised, ask yourself this question, too. All right. Because you've asked me some. Let's say the shoes on the other foot. Let's say that Trump won instead of Biden, but just the same way with all the tricks and gimmicks and all the statistically impossible probabilities. Let's say it happened. Do you think the, the, the Democrat the, the godless left would be doing what the right's doing right now, sitting on your fingers doing nothing? They'd be in the street.
1: Well, I would say the right is not sitting on their fingers doing nothing, but they're pursuing peaceful and legal recourse. Well, law, to, like to you,
0: law, like you just said, is only as good as the people behind it, right? Which right. is why yeah. it's not going to probably go no, anywhere. They, but, but where would the left this, be? This,
1: but this is one of the reasons why. I mean, the amazing tipping point in American history, which we're living through this very month, is that no matter what happens, half of America is not accepting this election. Right. And we, you know, we even talk about that perhaps another time. This is an incredible tipping point of great danger and also great opportunity. But um, oh, yeah, we know, we know. We know, of course, that this is what the judge is going to face. So the judge who may put a signature on, yeah, Trump won, if, if that's the way it plays out and that's what happens, right? Uh, he knows that his signature is going to have half of America up in flames. I mean, that is a hell of a burden to put on a judge. You know, he's gonna get threatened, and yeah, I would, without a doubt, um, half of America is is going to experience rioting that's gonna make uh, Rodney King look like a scene out of uh, Room with a View. And so, that is uh, a very, and of course, the violence works, violence works. Uh, this is one of the great tragedies and realities of, of human history that, um, if, if you point guns at people, they will comply because we're designed biologically for survival, not integrity.
0: Well, and, that, and goes, that goes back to the Christian narrative, which, while many Christians have turned violent, that is a betrayal of the principle, not an, a, an explanation of the principle. And when you mentioned those Goths who turned the corner and saw the priests, they weren't running away from guns and knives. They were running away from something more metaphysical, weren't they? An understanding of reality. And, but I think you're exactly right about that, and and I, just in the news today, before I came on, like like it's all, I, every time I talk to you, I look at the news, and it, it, there's so many things that, that demonstrate what we're talking about. But in, in a story, thirty percent of Democrats, you know, seventy something, seventy-eight percent of Republicans, but thirty percent of Democrats think the election was stolen. They're not bothered by it, but thirty—that's <laughs> that, a huge number. That's almost one-third of Democrats believe that it was stolen. When you add that to eighty percent of Republicans, you have a huge majority in this country who don't trust the elections anymore. Like you said, that's a that's a potential cataclysm
1: down the road, not uh, very soon. Down the road. <laughs> Right yeah, here. Yeah. No, and of course, for the people who are, are Darwinian, lying is the strategy. You know, and I, I talked about this in the show the other day, so I'll really keep it brief here, but you know, think about fishing, right? Because what you do when you drop a fish hook in the water with a piece of worm on it is you say, hey, here's some tasty food. You'll love this, it's gonna be the great, best food you've ever had, right? And then you've got a bloody great hook in there that goes through the eyeballs so you, of the fish so you can get some dinner. So you're lying to the fish. You're saying, "Hey, it's a hook." You know that the fish doesn't know anything about the hook, and you're just fooling the fish. And it's the same thing with the tiger and its stripes in the deep grass. It's creeping up to the gazelle or whatever the hell. It's it's hunting, and it's lying. Hey, man, there's no tiger here. Don't worry about a thing. You know, it's just some tall grasses. grew uh, in the wind. It's fine, and they'll make sure that they go downwind so it can't smell them. Or the cuckoo's going to drop its egg into another bird's nest and say, "Hey, this is totally your egg, man. You got to got to feed it and you got to raise it." Lying in nature is a perfectly acceptable strategy for gaining access to resources or to avoid danger. You know, the cats that go, you know, and they kind of puff themselves up in a way that you and I can't quite manage anymore. And uh, that's to make themselves look bigger, to fool the predator into thinking that they're bigger. You've got uh, moths that imitate uh, poison moths. You've got frogs that imitate poison frogs. They're all lying. Hey, I've got exactly the same coloring as that poison frog, but I'm not going to expend the resources to actually make poison. Hey man, that's that's false advertising. That's lying. Well, you can't do that. But like, well, you can in nature. And so the fact that the people on the left who are post-ethics and post-God are saying, well, you know, we want resources, so and this is how we get it is to to fudge this election. Well, that's that's as much cheating as as the tiger stripes is cheating. It's not cheating. It's just an excellent way to get resources. Or you don't sit there and say to the fisherman, you just lied your way into dinner, man. You didn't even tell the fish about that hook, and you know that the fish won't eat the hook, because if you put the hook in without the bait, you're not getting anything, so you're a bad person. It's like, no, I'm hungry, i got to get a fish. And so for them, it's like, okay, well, maybe we've got to fetch some numbers, maybe we've got to inject some code, maybe we've got to get some ballots, but we want the power, we want the resources, and what on earth is stopping us from doing it? Because they're Darwinian, and falsehood in Darwinian doesn't even exist as a moral category. It's a perfectly acceptable strategy to get resources, and the lion that says, hey, I'm a lion." i'm coming to eat you i'm gonna go upwind of you and i'm gonna jump up and down just in case you can't see me in the grass well that's a lion well we don't see those lions why because they never made it well
0: that's exactly right and the way i to me hypocrisy i phrase it the same way hypocrisy is only possible with human beings with consciences of all the sins Hypocrisy is the one that you cannot, be, you cannot be guilty of in a purely material world. The one most heartbreaking question, when kids know what my worldview is, the, the, heart, the ones that want to believe come to me with the heartbreaking question. Why is there no consequence for hypocrisy? Why can the left T- accuse Donald Trump of all of this, and then turn around and do it themselves. How can they damn? How can they project on us what they do every time, and it not bother them? And it's what you just said. They are creatures of the. They're materialist creatures, right? They see hypocrisy. What you and I would see is one of the great cardinal sins of of the, of, of of world religion: the hypocrite. Because the hypocrite's more the the sinner's bad. The sinner's he who knows what's right and wrong and chooses bad. The the hypocrite is somebody who knows what's right and wrong and pursues or seems to pursue the good while choosing the bad surreptitiously. It's much worse than typical sin. It's a huge exponential number after the sin you're creating. It's
1: one of the worst things you can do. And Well, the it, sinner is a warning, but the hypocrite is a seducer, and that's much that's more dangerous.
0: Right. That's right. And the thing is, is that, like you said, in a, in a Darwinian world, hypocrisy is strategy, man. Hypocrisy yeah. is a huge asset to who could pull it off, right? Uh, you think about the idea, why is, you'll get to one of the arguments, why is Satan so interesting today to people? It, look at all the TV shows that are being made about Lucifer and how he's kind of this cad, he's this lovable bounder, he's this misunderstood, right? And, and one of the reasons why is because... As you said, the, hypocr- the hypocrite is the seducer. Uh, Satan, whatever else he is, is the seducer. That now is perfectly legitimate. You know what's not legitimate anymore? Like you said, the lion that stands up and says, me. That's Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia, right? The Christ figure lion. Hey, right? Those characters tell you where they're coming from. And it's just not sexy, right? And so who are yours? Th- and I will, I will couple that with this. I think the reason, and I, I, the question I want you to answer for me in a second is in your mind. All right so your secular ethics
1: right your your questions are quite difficult so i'm just going
0: to <laughs> well this is literally. the one i want to i want to ask you is you build this you built this wonderful edifice rational evidence from the ground up about secular proofs of universal values uh, i would like you to talk about what distinguishes that from God in your mind. Or, 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 or you had said earlier in the program that um, without God it won't work. But before we come to that, I want to make one no, more No, 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 you
1: said, you said without God it won't work. No, you that, did that... too. You did oh, too earlier. Sorry, I meant it, it works logically, but it, I, I, I don't see much evidence that it's working practically. Sorry, I just want to make sure.
0: Uh, well, but I want you to explain that in a second. The thing that I wanted to share with you briefly is this, is this idea that in terms of human behavior, um, How does one go about this? I I think the reason Christianity is dying is not because we've rejected Christianity. I think one of the premises of our talk today, and I believe this is true, I think in the last five, since the election of Trump, we were first time noticeably entered by watching the opposition to Trump. We've really entered a post-Christian world, largely. When you think about how tech corporations, along with the technology companies, along with Hollywood, along with academia, journalism, the public school system, when you look at in concert how many forces are arrayed against what I would call traditional Western values, it's overwhelming. We are clearly in a post-Christian uh, era. And I don't think it's because Twitter is
1: majority owned by a Saudi prince who who ain't Christian uh, at all, right? And so the idea that Christian ethics are, are, you've got Marxist ethics, leftist ethics, and uh, Saudi ethics so to speak uh driving twitter and uh driving people off twitter
0: right no and i i think that it's not that christianity has been argued out of use, usefulness i think what's happened is for a long time we've made people embarrassed about christian truths so the same christianity that gave us dante and milton and dostoevsky and c.s lewis no longer has any intellectual leadership who n- name a, a a serious christian writer name a, a serious christian artist right now what happened was is we didn't we didn't overthrow logically christianity in fact we, the necessity of christianity is more now than it's ever been when you watch what's happening to the culture but what we've done is we've made it unfashionable to be a christian intellectual that to to to, to be a creator with that set of it's just it's just it's not it's not hip man it's not cool and for a long time, we have taken what used to be the hallmark of Western culture. Now, the average Christian, the av- as Dostoevsky points out, the average Christian is Christian because he's too afraid to be anything else, because the church offers him a, a welcoming that the, the jungle won't, right? And Dostoevsky says, that's fine. For certain of us, that's the Raskolnikov argument, right? Certain of us belong. We're sheep. Certain of us belong with shepherds. We can't do it on our own. That's, that's human nature. But what you always had in Christianity up until the last 50 years or so was serious intellectuals and artists who were making those claims in books, in movies, in paintings, in sculptures. But we have, with, ever since the, 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 really the 20th century, we have so made Christianity to be socially awkward, socially untenable, something we don't talk about at the dinner table, something mythological, and the reason Christianity is—we've moved past it as a culture. There are no more serious voices, intellectual voices, who are defending it. Where, where again? Where's the Christian art now? Where's the where's the Christian worldview that for two thousand years allowed the sheep to be sheep, but then gave a, an incredible incrustation of intellect and philosophical, all of that stuff? Where's it gone? And so. Uh, what are we teaching our kids we're teaching our kids that religion is superstition we're teaching that that christianity is white supremacy all that stuff we don't even teach christian art to them anymore why are they pulling the classics out of the classroom because kids will get are going to get christianity by accident if they're reading shakespeare or milton or Dostoevsky. get get rid of it the only way you can do it is to expose themselves to a completely christian free world to make sense of the new whatever you want to call it, the new materialism. But to me, that's the big problem. I mean, we don't have anybody of uh, like a Dante or a Shakespeare or a Milton or a Dostoevsky, any of those people. They're gone.
1: And so culturally, what do we look at Well, to? they're not gone. They're just, they're no longer allowed into the public square. They're kept outside. I have, uh, I'm sure you know this, but, but my original goal was art. My original yes. goal yep. was, uh, I was acting, playwriting, I wrote a bunch of novels. And here's the most amazing thing to me, was that... So one of the novels uh, was writing about the hypocrisy of atheists. It was called the God of atheists. So the God of atheists is, is uh, vanity and the novel. I, I went through a whole writing program, the Humber School for Writers. It ended up going out to a professional reviewer with a PhD in literature. And it blew my mind. He was, he also had a, a, a he was a theologian with a PhD in literature, <laughs> not unlike yourself, I suppose. And he wrote a review back to my agent where he said, finally, we have the great Canadian novel. This is, is deep, it's passionate, it's powerful, it examines morality, it examines human choice. It is a an amazing book. I said, I've never read anything like it. So I'm sitting there like, okay, that's that's about as good a review as you're ever gonna get of a book that you've written. And my writing teacher loved it, my agent loved it. And um, this reviewer and a couple other reviewers were just like, okay, like paved the way. This is like, this is gonna, there's a Renaissance book kind of thing, right? So I would go to work every day in my computer um, as a software entrepreneur. So I'd go to work and I would, every time the phone would ring, well, I would sit there and think, okay, this is it, man. Here we go. Here we go. Book publishing deals. It's going to be a movie. It's going to be exciting, right? And nothing. I just finished recording a 28 plus hour audiobook of a novel. I wrote to spend a whole year writing this novel uh, before um, I started my philosophy show. Uh, it's called Almost, and it's a story of a German family and a British family between World War One and World War Two. And, of course, I'm half British and half German, so I've got all the family stories, all of the history. And, you know, I poured heart and soul into this book, made, uh, incredible research. I've got Churchill as a character. I've got the, re- the, the, the the small personal decisions that lead to the massive appeasement that destroys the West in many ways. And... I think it's a fantastic book. The characters were so vivid for me that even when I finished reading it as an audio book, which I did just yesterday, I like I felt an ache, like I wasn't going to meet these people again for a while. And anyway, so uh, that book again, incredibly positive reviews went out there, and nothing. Now, I could, well, I know that there's a lot of secular people in the publishing industry, but I'm I was an atheist and and secular, and so, but no, it's because it's critical of collectivism, it's critical of socialism and communism and it is my kneeling him towards the pulpit of universal morality that is all that civilization is is all that distinguishes us from the animals is our capacity to compare proposed actions to ideal standards fish don't do it lions don't do it zebras don't do it apes don't do it all we can do that defines us as human is compare our proposed actions to an ideal standard that's it that's all we got and these books were all very passionate defenses of that with the most amazing reviews from the most professional people and boom, you know, nothing can't, can't get it out there. Did you and get, there's this, did, you get uh,
0: phalanx. did you get significant net negative reviews too? that, that challenged the positive? Were there, were there just ignorant negative reviews?
1: Not that I, I mean, I never got any forwarded uh, to me. Uh, the people who were the reviewers were very positive. I mean, my very first writing teacher, uh, hated, uh, my first novel, this one that the uh, Christian ended up loving, Uh, So there was and he said, I don't even know what to make of it. It's like it's not even a book. Uh, And uh, again, you know, I mean it was early stages. I was still thrashing out a very unusual writing style uh, that that I was developing. But um, no, it is it is that morality and consequentialism, right? Because like, why do bad people? get away with stuff. Well, the purpose of a novel, in many ways, I think, is the secular equivalent of a morality tale. And, of course, as you know, stories in the Middle Ages and novels at the beginning were all morality tales, Samuel Richardson, uh, um, uh, Daniel Defoe, think of William Defoe, <laughs> Daniel, all morality tales, which is, hey, ladies, don't choose a rake, because he's going to leave you. And, hey, guys, don't put your faith in uh, in money, because it's going to make you unhappy. It's all morality tales. And my novels were very much character arcs of, you know, here are the people who make good decisions, and here's why. Here's the intermediate characters can go either way and here's the bad characters who make bad decisions and rather than having to wait till you're 60 and see all of your friends who made bad decisions uh, lying in a gutter by the side of the road or in terrible marriages or addicted to something you get to see that when you're 20 through the course of a novel and hopefully it scares the pants on you if you think and have an affair and you go watch fatal attraction that's a good thing to do right so art is supposed to show you what the food tastes like at the end of the moral recipe without you having to spend 40 years Baking, and then finding out by the time it's too late that you should have had a whole different set of ingredients, and scaring people with fiction is one of the primary purposes of morality. Why do we have moral art? Why do we have uh, stories that terrify us into being good, or, or or inspire us, or terrify us into avoiding evil and inspire us into being good? And I was always very dedicated to that particular approach to life, that that the purpose of art is fundamentally moral. And the entertainment value is just the sugar that helps the medicine go down, but its purpose is not to entertain or to distract or to reinforce cultural stereotypes or woke culture bullshit. The purpose is to show you what happens if you're bad and inspire you as to what happens if you're good and you can't have consequentialist moral art anymore. It's just blocked because they, if you scare people into being good then they become responsible and they get self-ownership and they become productive and then they don't want the government all over their grill, so to speak. So, uh, I think that had a lot to do. There lots of great artists out there, but you just, you cannot get through that, uh, collectivist phalanx of people who want to seduce everyone into short term gain of serotonin, short term gain of endorphins, short term gain of money or sex or whatever. And, you know, it's, it's why you've never seen any movies about one of the most common phenomenons in the modern West, which is spinster regret. You've never seen movies about a woman who squanders her youth and beauty and sexuality on a series of do-nothing, go-nowhere relationships, and then when she gets cast aside in her 40s, uh, is incredibly bitter and angry and regretful. You can't see that art, even though that was very common in the past you know, uh, you you, you better not tarry because all the good guys will be gone, was famous poetry from, what, 17th century, 16th century. And the danger of a woman falling prey to sexual vanity because she's high sexual market value and she's young, not using it to, quote, purchase a good quality man and then ending up ignored, alone, childless, abandoned. You can't see that story because that might scare young women into stopping riding the carousel of men and actually settling down with someone, which means kids, which means quality people, which means Christianity, I think you're going to get married in a church, right? So you can't have art that actually helps people anymore. Art is there to delude and deny people the birthright of moral warnings, which is, you know, you can't learn everything by empiricism. You've got to have some abstract principles that are that going to guide you. But you can't have any guidance for people because otherwise they're not going to go off a cliff in the way the elites want.
0: You know that's exactly right. What you're coming at from the publishing angle, I come at from the professorial English professor way, right? For uh, two thousand years, we've had literary criticism, which is all about what you just described—the what they used to call the Horatian formula literature, right? Going all the way back to Horace, that the purpose of literature is to teach morally and to delight, right? You said it—a little sugar to make the medicine the po- the point, medicine of the philosophy go down. That's the Horatian formula. Take it all the way through Sir Philip Sidney and John Dryden, Matthew Arnold. For 2,000 years, over 2,000 years, that's what literature was. And we who taught literature were moralists. We were moral gatekeepers. And then comes the 1950s. All that's shifted over away from moral veritude and art and beauty as, as actual truth of Ke- Keats, right? There actually were. He did believe in truth and beauty. They, you could qualify them and quantify them them. them. Boom. 1950 comes. Right? Everything shifts. And what do we get instead of that? Identity politics. Now it's feminist literary criticism, Marxist literary criticism, it's environmentalism, it's queer theory, it's transgender. All these now, which are collectivist, politically left-wing activist ways of reading books, are all our kids are allowed to do. We have, we passed, I fought tooth and nail against it, by, I was about by myself. We re- we did our theory course requirement as an English department a couple years ago. I said, we've got to go back to a model that taught early and late. It, what the postmoderns are doing doesn't make any sense unless you've read Aristotle's p- Poetics, unless you've read right, uh, Longinus on the Sublime. How can you have a history of literary criticism that starts in 1950? Well, that's what they did. Every kid at my English department takes no history classes whatsoever. No surveys of literature are required, no historical accounting of, reli- of literature. You remember when we were in school, you used to take Britlet 1, Brit Lit 2, American, all gone in my university. They have to take three, they have to take a course called 381, which is literary theory, and it starts with all the postmodern stuff. So the only way we give kids to read books at the university, and I point this out, and, and no one no one understands me when I say this in the inside the academy. This is my question: When did we decide that it was okay to teach exclusively left wing activist reading strategies to kids? They won't even they don't even pretend like it's an issue. Feminism, whatever else you call it, is left-wing activism. Marxism, environmentalism, queer theory, these are all activist left-wing political strategies. And they have replaced everything else. And so here I am, When I teach literature, I don't teach those lenses because explain to me what benefit reading 20th century feminism is to reading uh, uh, measure for measure by Shakespeare. What possible benefit can you get in reading the Odyssey by reading it through Marxist lenses? I mean, it's, it's the most anachronistic bunch of garbage, but when I do that, when I teach Shakespeare through the lens of 16th century philosophy, history, church history, theology, dramatic convention. I'm the one who's being political. They they say, I'm literally politicizing this. You're teaching Christianity in your Shakespeare course. Well, how the hell hell else do you understand The Tempest? How the hell else do you understand a play like Measure for Measure whose title comes from the Bible? Of course I teach Shakespeare. I give them Bible when, when I give them Shakespeare. You have to. That's a political act now. But taking a Shakespearean play and reading it exclusively through 25 years of ecology theory, that's perfectly normal. That's how out of whack we are now.
1: Well, I mean, uh, I remember when I, I played the leader in Macbeth uh, when I was younger. And it, it's going to teach you a lot about overreaching ambition. Because I've always Spiritual been a very pride. ambitious person. Yeah, I've, I've always been a very ambitious person. And if I hadn't played Macbeth, because one thing to study, it's another thing to actually get up and do it. Uh, and, and playing Macbeth was like i mean that's a pretty chilling ending to an over ambitious life and also a life where your identity is driven by female vanity and ambition you know the the, the beware the female is something that um is pretty common in in uh, uh in literature uh, now there's beware the male like the vanity of king lear and so on but there is beware the female and male alertness to the capacity for female evil is something that i have always been trying to raise in in this show being raised by a violent woman i know pretty intimately the female capacity for evil, and there's male capacity for evil, but the women are wonderful phenomenon, and the feminist all evils in the world come from the testicles. Uh, that is blinding us to the real machinations that sometimes go on behind the scenes, which is, you know, a lot of male fights are like two women fighting through proxy, and uh, uh, even wars can happen that way. And of course, female leaders start many more wars than male leaders in, in human history. So yeah, forgetting about female evil, that's something that you are never going to get you're never gonna get reminders of female evil because in feminist literature, which is supposed to empower women, women are always victims and they're fooled and the men are just perfect chameleons and there's just no way for them to ever figure out that the guy with a swastika tattooed on his forehead could turn out to be a bad guy. And uh, that disempowering of female and the capacity for female evil, which is pretty central to Christianity, of course, right? And the capacity for female evil uh, all the way back to the Garden of Eden is, uh, is a pretty important thing to remember. But now we have a society just deferred to women, which gives them too much power. Power corrupts, and then women can become unappealing, birth rates collapse, and so does the civilization. Yeah, and that's a great point. The only situation
0: in which feel empower, uh, female empowerment thrives off of female victimhood is today, right? What we've done is we've, we've taken feminism and we to convince women they're victims in every circumstance, then we have a culture that makes the victim the hero. right? And so that's, the, that's what the identity politics is. right? You're only a hero in the modern world if you're a victim. You're only a hero if you're not a cisgendered white guy. right? Then you're a victim. And, and we now know that the victim is actually morally better than the achiever, than the, the, the creator. And so you see what a vicious circle we've got ourselves. How do you have morality in a world where the only thing we see as moral is politics? We, we have no, you, you, built a uni, you built a system of universal morality based on reason. What is morality based on now to the degree that it exists? Politics. You are already moral in this culture if you're a Democrat. If you're a Republican, you're not. If you're a woman, you already have a moral high card because you're not part of the patriarchy. God, if you're a minority, right, your skin color confers an almost absolute morality on you that, that requires no sacrifice from you. It's just your skin color that gives you. And so we're, we're attaching morality now to superficial qualities like race, class, and gender. That makes perfect sense in the... Animal, the nature analogy you gave us, right? In the you cover who you are, right? You you masquerade. It's the armadillo, it's the possum that plays dead, right? The uh, the the creature that play that lays down before the bear as if it were dead, hoping the bear is going to sneak sniff it and go on. That's the aspect of culture we're we're taking here, and that does lead us to that question I wanted to ask you. I think it's an important one. Um, Having read your secular uh, tower of reason, which is very from an uh, intellectual position is very satisfying, but it does con- conclude with a universal set of assumptions about human beings as moral creatures. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit now. It's been how many years since you wrote that?
1: Uh, 13 or 14. Well, okay. it's been 15 years since I started the uh, essay, yeah.
0: Okay, so what I'd like to ask you, because you and I over the years, last five or six years, talked a lot about that, right? Uh, but both of us talking about uh, the clearer we come to understand the world, the more it does depend to some degree on the idea of God, whatever that means. And I just, I'm just I would be very glad to hear you relate that. If you were going to write an epilogue or a postscript to what you wrote those years ago, what might, what might it look like philosophically?
1: We're doomed. Now, so the, the big question in morality is punishment. Morality without consequences, is it really morality? Uh, It's kind of hard to make that case, kind of like an intellectual exercise. In other words, if you have a habit that has no bearing on your health, then do you bring it to your doctor? doctors doctor says, I don't really care, I don't care. I don't care if you if you read books hardcover or you read books on a Kindle. It doesn't really have any effect on your health. <laughs> so the whole question around morality is centered on punishment. Now, I got to tell you guys, Christianity you got the punishment thing completely sewn up. Like you own that. You you are uh, you are like punishment central. You are like the the clearinghouse of punishment uh, on on two levels, right? One is more secular, and one is of course ecclesiastical. The secular one is um, sinners are miserable. I mean, they're happy for a little while, like cocaine makes you happy for a while, so I've heard. But you're miserable uh, in the long run. And that's portrayed through biblical stories, that's portrayed through art, uh, and so on, right? So there is the secular aspect, and then there is the ecclesial aspect of union with God versus rejection with God, whether you go all the way to hell or not, right? it knows different denominations have different views. But for, of course, for a lot of the people who say there is no hell, they say, well, yes, but functionally distance from God after you're dead is equivalent of hell because you get a taste of how wonderful it would be. And you've got to, you know, live on McDonald's when you just could have had a five-star restaurant or whatever. So, so you guys have the punishment thing down pat and you've got the reward thing down pat and i know this sounds very uh, a silly way of putting it but i'm trying to sort of put it in a context that my atheist friends will kind of grok to right so so the question for me was okay let's say i have this towering edifice to secular ethics good job me now what right and there's no point in creating the best diet in the world if nobody ever changes what they eat right so my big question was okay if the non-aggression principle is a virtue, then what happens to those who violate the non-aggression principle in principle? That's very, very important, right? The people who violate the non-aggression principle, in fact, like a murderer or a rapist or somebody who assaults them, they go to jail in general, as a whole, right? Or at least they're rejected from polite and civil society. But again, that's the heart attack situation and I'm the nutritionist, so that's too late. So the question is, what happens to people without God who approve of the use of violence to achieve their ends. That's the important, that's the very, very big question. It's the question of punishment, right? Now, if like the two women in the park that we talked about earlier, they were giant fans of the initiation of force to get their resources they just they didn't want to do it themselves because who wants to get their hands muddy right uh you you go and get the government to do it for you because much less risky and then it's legal and somehow we've got this weird idea which i thought had been cured at nuremberg that somehow the legal is the moral or whatever right so they are very very happy to get a million dollars worth of value simply by whining to the government having the government point guns at people, borrow on their behalf, print money, steal, lie, cheat, whatever. Just give me my give me my government cheddar, right? So what can a secular society do to punish people, not who've directly used violence themselves, but who approve of the use of violence to get what they want? Now, I came up with an answer, as you can imagine. It was a pretty obvious question, a pretty obvious problem. This goes back to a speech I gave over 10 years ago now at a big libertarian conference called How to Achieve Freedom. And in it, very briefly, uh, it's called the against me argument. And the against me argument is if somebody approves the use of government force to get resources from you or to ensure compliance from you, when you yourself are peaceful, you are just out there working, you're raising your family, you're riding your bike or whatever, it's not like you're a killer or a murderer or anything. So somebody who says the government should be able to initiate the force, the use of force against you, and if you disobey what the government wants, the government should have the right to kidnap you, throw you in jail where you might get raped by a very large succession of very large men, right? So that's called, like, you, do you support the use of force against me? Now, my argument to the libertarians was if someone, like, you bring this argument to someone and say you not only approve of, you praise and consider necessary the initiation of the use of force against me as a peaceful citizen to conform with whatever political ideology you have or want then you are an immoral person. Now, evil is when you act upon it. Immoral to me is kind of when you support it in theory. And it's one is subsequent to the other. You usually need to have the theory before you have the practice of of genuine evil. And the theory is in a sense where philosophy can intervene. Once it gets to practice, you need, I don't know, self-defense or something. So I said to all the libertarians, so you all believe that non-aggression principle, taxation is theft. So the people in your life, the people in your life who support and praise the use of force against you are immoral by your own definition of what is moral. Now, they're not taking a knife out to you directly, they're not kidnapping you directly, but they're supporting the people who do and who will. And they want it, not just supporting it like it's okay, they're supporting it like yay. And I said, so what are the consequences of people in your life who claim to love you, but want you kidnapped, locked, caged, and possibly raped for disagreeing with them? It's pretty clear to me that you can't have people in your life who claim to love you and then support the use of violence against you if you disagree with their preferences. I mean, that's completely immoral. And so I said, yeah, take some time, educate people and so on. But at some point, at some point, you either have to give up the ideals of the non-aggression principle or you have to ostracize those who support the use of violence against you. And it's not that complicated an argument when you think about it, right? I mean, if you are, uh, if you hate Nazis, good reason to hate Nazis, no problem with hating Nazis. Nazis are hateable. But if someone in your life is a Nazi and you're Jewish, uh (laughs) what's going on there you know maybe they're a little ignorant maybe you need to educate them on what nazism really means the anti-semitism but at some point do you stay friends with the nazi if you're a jew like it's a big question and i gave everybody a pretty clear and robust answer in a variety of speeches and articles and so on the against me argument became common parlance in libertarianism because that's the punishment the punishment is hey you support the use of violence against me i am not going to be in your life like i can't i mean that's just it's too humiliating it's too ridiculous It's like, you know, I mean, if you're in the KKK, you can't be buddies with me if I'm black or whatever, you know, cliche you want to put out there. It's pretty clear. Right. So that was the punishment aspect. That was the secular punishment aspect of ostracism, which I've been writing about for a long 15 years straight. I've been writing about ostracism as the means of social enforcement. Quick question. (laughs) How do you think that went as a whole? Not well. Yeah. But although
0: it goes back to what I said before because it's a universal answer. I mean, your what you just said could have been what St. Paul said. St. Paul said exactly the same thing. What do you do with a, a brother that goes astray? You can only walk with him so far that your faith has to come before that. And ultimately... Paul calls upon the community to ostracize those who walk outside the faith.
1: and, and I am totally original in this. Nobody and, has said yeah. it before me. <laughs> I well, claim the mantle of
0: but complete you're, originality. You, you are trying to do it outside of the universal box. And the problem is, is that if you, if, you, if you called it a sometime solution to the problem, no one would have listened to you either, but at least you wouldn't get <laughs> this objection. <laughs> but at least I wouldn't be this bitter about it. <laughs> Well, but that, but that let, me, let me ask you a question, though, that does tie into what I've been saying all along, too, is that what, by removing God as culturally as a possibility, you're also really taking away the possibility of internal conscience, aren't you? I mean, if we argue that human beings are just highly evolved animals, then conscience, whatever it is, could just be an anomaly, right? Uh, do, we don't see the lion guilty when a lion no. kills more gazelles than it needs, or when a, a fox or a cat, a feral cat, gets into my father-in-law's chicken houses, it doesn't just kill the one cat, the, the one chicken it wants to eat, it'll kill 10,000 chickens if it, if it can. No guilt there, and if we're just animals, then there's the, an entire internalization of morality that goes when we materialize culture. Even before Christ, you had Socrates. Socrates, like you said, right, Socrates is one of the 12 people who understood why he was doing what he was doing. Like you're one of 12 people who get what you're doing, right? But he, but, and, and what did he do? He was able to internalize that and he does what the important thing to do is. He drinks the hemlock. His argumentation is based on the internal compass of his morality being part of his soul, not being something from the outside.
1: Well, I, I've made a case that he did that as a giant fu to the culture that killed him, well, saying, that's "Hey, that too. obey the state, obey the state, man. That's going to work out really well." My parting curse to you is, "Obey the state." Anyway, that's topic for another time. But yeah, <laughs> so when I go when I go to libertarians who are very much into the non-aggression principle, the foundation of the morality, and I say, "Hey, man, you got to live your values, or or discard the values, right? Because there's no, I mean, having values and not living them discredits those values. It's better to not have those values." Like, if you are like, oh, I'm very much into the non-aggression principle, and now I'm going to go play golf with three people who want me thrown in jail for disagreeing with them politically, it's like, please stop saying that you're into the non-aggression principle. Because what you're saying is the non-aggression principle, it's just kind of like an abstract little thing. It's kind of like a fundamental, it's like Sudoku. You know, it's just something, it's like a crossword, you know, it's just something that's like mini golfers, it's like something that you just play around with, it's not not serious or anything, and I remember saying this to people who were into my show, and say, look, if you really believe in, in the values and virtues of philosophy, please go and live a moral life. If you don't want to go live a moral life, at least according to the ethics that I think are universal that I've defined, that's no problem, but then never tell anyone you've listened to my show, that's all, like, if you, if you, like cause if you write a diet book that's really good and a whole bunch of fat people say, I love that diet, what are people going to say? Uh, that diet's got to be crap, <laughs> you know, cause so... And so when you go to people who've founded their entire conferences on the non-aggression principle and taxationist and theft, and you go to them and say, Shouldn't these ideas have some consequences in your actual real life? Wait, that's a that's a cult leader talking. No, no, it's not well, a cult leader talking. It's like these are the values you I didn't inflict these on you. You have voluntarily I I learned these values from some of you. You have voluntarily accepted and absorbed these morals. And now I'm saying this should have a consequence in See, your actual life. It is alarming
0: to me how much you sound like Jesus right now. <laughs> I mean, isn't that Jesus' entire the lament? What's point of these values? Is
1: they it... just, they, do you to torture yourself for these values? Are they just there to make you feel vain? Or are they there to just make you feel excluded and different and dangerous and, and edgy? And like, what is the point? of all of these values to just torture yourself just give up and go with the herd or actually stand with your values but this one foot on the dock and one foot on the pier you got the splits and you're like nabby nadia kamanichi with two T-Rexes pulling her like a piece of chicken Sorry. My, my analogy's got away with me there, but... <laughs> Look, the, re, the, the, the
0: reason I think it worked for Christ was not the... Lo- Christ foregrounded the illogicality of what he was doing. If the world is four dimension, uh, three dimensions, five senses, then what I am telling you is illogical. It is irrational. It's like Lewis said, C.S. Lewis, let's stop with this re- romantic idea that Jesus is a good guy. Either he is a lunatic and we should condemn him to the lunatic fringe, or if he is who he says he is, then you got to worship him. There's no other option. You have two options. You condemn him as a crazy man, or you accept who he is, and you change. You live a different life. Why do I think Christ was successful for 2000, 2,000 years? Because what Christ said is exactly what you said, but the truth is not in the logic of the thing. It's in what is illogical about it. So in other words, God himself, that last step in the universal block, right? Because whatever God is, for a God to be worth worshiping, he has to be a universal God. He cannot be a specific one. If you have a universal God, then you have something. And That'd I think yeah. and I think that's the next step. It's implied in what you wrote, but it's never stated. I think that's why they got mad at you, because they could see the implication. But it's there. And what Jesus simply said was, is that there is, there is not simply the irrational and the rational. There is the rational, follow Steph's book, or the irrational, be a Jew who goes, hangs out with, plays golf with KK members, or there's a third option, which Christ points to, which is the supernatural, that which is bigger than, a, a bigger kind of logic than the human mind can process, the kind of rationality that would come with a creator God Right. If there is a Creator God, if there is a universal God who created the universe, who created logic, who created reason, who created physics and science. then the logicality the rationality of that god would have to be disproportionately larger than we could squeeze between our temples this is the this is this is ivan karamazov and the brothers karamazov the 100% and so ultimately what christ says is i am not asking you to be Ill. this is where the libertarian falls away well, that doesn't make any sense why should i love my neighbor more than myself i'm willing to love my neighbor but not more than me as a libertarian i need no the the, the, the it is a super rationality of the argument you meant why should the lion lay down in front of the lamp. More than just the, the, the natural order of things. Christianity goes to an alternate logic that that which is logical in the material world, like you so vividly described, lions don't apologize, animals conceal who they are, they're proud of lying, it's part of the strategy. Christ says you have to go the opposite logic from what is worldly truth. And that is the stronger you are, the more competent you are, the more intelligent capacity you have, the more you are obligated not to coexist, but to serve, to serve those who are weaker than you. And if, if there's any truth to that, it seems to me it's too beautiful not to be true on some level, <laughs> that, that when we see power stooping to service not to selfishness. And that's why the American founding was such a which is which is going away now was so critical. The United the founding fathers gave us the first government who's, who saw government as to serve not to be served. The first time in human history, really, that you codified a government based on the very Christian idea of service. That's a Christian notion. It's one of the great gifts of of Christianity to Western culture was the idea that power must serve, not simply be served. That is, I think, a remarkably Christian understanding of things. I don't think it's paralleled really anywhere. And if you look at 2000 years of the evolution of that idea through the founding of this country, in which we elect a government that serves us, that we are theoretically in control of, that doesn't serve itself, well, there I think is an exact, exact, exact example of you cannot occupy a middle space, there's a third alternative. It can't be logical or illogical only. I think when you have that third possibility that something can be universal, because the universal can only be in the third. You've got the reality of now, you've got logic and its consequences. All we can see the logic and its consequences in a, is in their material formats. Material formats. Without that third option, universality is not possible, and that includes logical universality. But when you go over to the universal potential, it seems to me, when you seed the possibility, well, it doesn't have to be God. It's certainly plausible. That they're aliens somewhere in the universe who have more advanced civilization than we have, who have a deeper capacity for understanding than we do, a, a, a more profound uh, cranial ability than we have. That's certainly possible. Who are as far evolved above us as we are above snails. And that, y- we wouldn't call that irrational, right? We would say there's, perhaps, to the degree that we could understand it, we might recognize in those creatures a kind of superior rationality that I would argue, if God exists, would have to be part of what he is. And when you look at it that way, it it's not irrational, and it's not even rational. The the, the mandate for those who are strong to serve the weak is an answer that Dostoevsky and I both agree, is, did could not have come from a human brain, that that kind of rationality requires could have come something. Come from a high-
1: mammal's brain for sure. No, you think so? No it, sorry it couldn't have come from a mammal. No uh, no because no if I don't gonna think you're going to so. define the human as yeah. comparing potential actions to ideal standards then N- yeah but it couldn't it couldn't come from evolution so to speak. And listen I mean throwing all false modesty aside it is a kind of hypocrisy. I mean I knew it that I was blessed with a number of very potent gifts. You know eloquence mm-hmm. and and uh, convincibility and metaphors on the fly. Like all of the things that that make our conversations so great you bring that to the table I bring that to the table and I was very aware when I was Younger um, how much those skills could be used for good or ill like the, the gifts that that I have Been given that I've cultivated, but I've also cultivated because they were quite strong gifts mm-hmm. to begin with um, so The idea that I have I mean and I have really put myself in the service of the world at sometimes great personal cost You know I mean it, it, it's something somebody, somebody I think it was Kaya Jones who posted this on parlor that the closer you are to God The more you're hated by the world. It's like well, then I'm pretty much <laughs> I got to be kind of up there at the moment because uh, it's pretty it's pretty bad out there for reputation for uh, for clear thinkers and, and anti-collectivists and all that. So I recognize that there was going to have to be a service element and there was also going to have to be a sacrifice element. And that comes out of the reading of Shakespeare and, and playing Macbeth and realizing the, the problems with that kind of vanity. But let's scrub past all of that. And let's finish on this particular topic, because this is where you're you may as well be be topless and on, a, on a pole here, because this is your great seductive move. Um, the great temptation, like you, you, you put your tentacles up my nose until you find the great temptation that I have. And here's the great, te- I'll be perfectly frank with you, my friend, about the great temptation I have. I will tell you this, man. There is nothing more tempting to me than being able to outsource punishment to someone or something else. Oh, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. Mm-hmm. Because the idea that I don't have to get up there and nag inconstant libertarians to actually live their damn values in their own life. The values they believe should be universal, but they don't want around them. It's like, I want this. I want all human beings to follow this diet. Hey, do you feel like following it? No. Why would you think that? (laughs) That would be crazy. So the idea that I wouldn't have to convince people to ostracize uh, immoral people, but that immorality would be punished by a cosmic law of nature... Mm -hmm tell me more well that's interesting
0: <laughs> i'll tell you for me and I, I i sympathize with you but again the answer i think is dostoevsky the dostoevsky inter, interprets interpretation of christ think about christ as the one figure let's play play make-believe here then christ is who he says he is then he is the one figure whoever walked this earth who could do that right as the creator god he could do that he could set up a system
1: where oh you, don't get me wrong i would like to punish it, people it, but it violates the non-aggression principle.
0: Well, ah! yes. And also it violates what good is compelled contrition? What good is compelled suffering, right? And, and again, the thing that I so, much, I so much like about the Christian example is he's not just telling you these hard truths. He said, now let me go hang on a cross to show you. Let yeah. me take the suffering that they deserve. Let me, who came only to love them, only deserve serve them, let me but, but take that fair, punishment. Do have a,
1: to be fair, I do have a very harsh Wikipedia page. So obviously it's <laughs> pretty much the same thing. Just you kidding. Know, Just kidding. It's the, nothing like the same I, thing.
0: I've watched your career. The idea that you haven't paid a price. You, you could have sold out a number of ways and be much more well received, and I'm sure richer, if you had stayed on a certain course. But it's good I'm glad that you couldn't do it. I mean, you're a One of us. <laughs> you're a, you are a more necessary figure because you haven't done it. But you know, like I said, I mean, uh, maybe this is where my Christianity helps me uh, when I think about him and how he's been ignored all these years, how his, his principles have been mocked, how his, his truly sacrificial way has been, has been demeaned. I, I, I started out teaching college without the grandiosity that I was going to change the world. I just felt that if I could change people who read Shakespeare or people who read culture, Western culture's mind, that would be enough for me. And it has been. And I'm, I'm getting, what, maybe one or two out of ten of them? That's the only thing that keeps me doing it because I, I still... You know, every now and then, once or twice a month, I'll get a note. Hey, I'm so and so from seven years ago. Hey, 22 years ago, I took your class at Purdue, and you were, and I want you to know I've never forgotten. And I'm sure you must get. You, I've, I've read the notes that you get, the comments you get from people who watch your programs. Staggering. The the help you have doled out to people, the way that you have humanely touched them. Uh, the rest is just gilding here. But I I think that what I like about this conversation is you and I have talked about this without climbing that last little step, and it's just nice to do it to climb that last little step and see it. I'll leave you the last, the last commentary here. Um, I would like you to close up summing, summing up by, all right, so um, talk about a, at the end here, how do you handle, I mean, you know that's your fantasy to be able to, that, that there was some trigger measure, measure that people suffered without anybody having to enforce it for what they do. But, but, but over and above that, how do you, uh, how do you personally reconcile all of this in your, I mean, I know how you write about it. I know how we talk about it. Uh, Just personally, when you put your head on the pillow at night, uh, what do you, what do you imagine for a human future? What do you imagine in your best thoughts about what could be as opposed to where
1: we seem to be heading? Well, the great temptation of power arises out of frustration, frustration that things aren't going fast enough, frustration that poor people don't have access to resources, frustration that the air is not clean enough as you want it to, frustration that the world is not conforming to what you want. Frustration that, say, the black community is not doing as well as the East Asian community, or frustration that women don't make as much as men. Frustration, frustration, frustration. And that to me is one of the greatest temptations that I have to avoid is frustration because what frustration does is it draws me into old testament retribution land. And that is piercing back through the bedrock of. Christianity, which is still the foundation, as I'm increasingly aware, partly through our conversations and just partly through a lot of things, that Christianity um, has informed most of my moral examinations. I mean, that, that was my first 12 years of life. And I was in the church choir and all that kind of stuff. So the great temptation, and everybody has their own different temptations, right? But but the, my great temptation is frustration, because when I see uh, people, and, and if Biden gets in, the suffering is going to be truly biblical i mean the, the suffering is going to be and then so then okay so i want to warn people away from this kind of suffering i wrote this on parlor the other day that smart people learn from arguments average people learn from uh, experience or evidence and less able people learn only through suffering and you want to avoid that suffering you want to avoid that suffering occurring in the world and this cassandra thing and you get really you get really frustrated you get really frustrated that people aren't listening to simple reason, and that's like that fine people hoax that is the foundation of the whole Biden campaign that Trump said that white right. supremacists are fine people. It takes literally 15 seconds to go look at this transcript and find out that that's completely not true. Completely
0: and no, not true. And no one's ever been banned on Twitter for saying it.
1: No one's ever been banned on Twitter for saying it. Or I mean, you know, the lies that are told uh, about me, uh, again, they're very easy to disprove. I put out whole videos and, and articles about this stuff. I mean, it's all it's not even taken out of context. It's just completely reversed. right? So the frustration, the way to vent the frustration is through punishment, right? That's one of the things that frustration drives you to do. Now, that's not always a bad thing. Punishment is perfectly appropriate and acceptable in certain circumstances and certain situations. I'm not a radical pacifist, that kind of way, in any way, shape, or form. But, of course, it is the pendulum swing of restraint followed by licentiousness with regards to to frustration and punishment, that is the great danger, one of the great dangers for me. Because what the world does is it taunts you into hating the world, right? It it behaves badly, it lies about you, it provokes you, it destroys your source of income, it attacks your reputation, it tries to split you up from your relationships. I mean, it just acts demonically towards you in the goal of returning hatred for hatred. And then to the untrained eye, because the majority is invisible, like water to a fish, to the untrained eye, you look like you're King leah like railing at the elements for no purpose. You look crazy, you look immoral and all that. So taunting you into hatred. And this is something that Jesus didn't do. (laughs) He didn't get there. That's what he he said.
0: Yes, what he said is, if you could find a way to love them instead of wishing to punish them, then that breeds one thing. You will suffer for them. And maybe that's where the, and to some degree you are, you're not just suffering yeah. for yourself in not reaching them, you're suffering for them. And uh, to me, that's the final piece of the puzzle. That, to me, is where the next step goes in, your, in, in my reading of your secular universal declaration of that. Because I'm like,
1: I'm, I'm half on that thing of like this Old Testament, good. Yes, good you you didn't listen to me for 40 years about communism and now a communist facilitated virus is decimating your life i believe like i believe like you the old
0: testament is justice baby that was not harshness that was justice god was dealing out is there something more to mercy than justice and that's what the New Testament's about. See, it's the hardest, I think it's the hardest thing in the world to do. To love your it's, suffering is easy, relative, right? Suffering, especially if you're victimized in suffering, because there's a certain self justification to that. But what if he's right about that last step? I mean, certainly the model of his life seems to reflect that. If you can turn the the hatred, turn the that need to want them punished, which is what the father, which is what was different between the Old Testament and the new, a new covenant. If you can find a way to love those who hate you, then of necessity you will suffer for them.
1: And maybe well, that's and, the answer. And the, the fundamental I think answer to that as well, and not to speak for Jesus it would be ridiculously presumptuous, but the argument could be Okay, so if you love your enemies, they conquer you and they kill you. That's better than living in a world where you cannot love.
0: Well, I I don't think so. I don't think Christianity, Christ made Christ a... Christ did not make Christianity a suicide cult. In fact, you had some of the most righteous wars under the banners of Christ, right? That you can... Mm -hmm. if if, If I... If I believe what Christ sacrificing for you means, if you're a Jew in a gas camp, I have a moral obligation at times uh, to mm. to try to liberate you. I mean, uh, when Christianity, you know, it's it's what do I have to do in suffering? Right? It, it can be as painful to free you as it is to suffer with you. Or you think about what uh, uh, the great martyrs did. Uh, the one, like was uh, who what the in the concentration camps. What was his name? Who Was it
1: uh, the Christian?
0: No, no, the Christian who gave his life to save a Jewish person. He was imprisoned, the great... uh,
1: I can't remember about it, yeah, I know who you're
0: talking about. I, it, it's got, a, it's not Ryan, what is his name? Anyway, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, not Ryan Holler, but it's someone like that. Somebody yeah. like that, anyway. I mean that, I, I, so my I guess my point is is that if you, once you embrace the uh, the approach of Christ, then you do have a platform for which the the confrontation of evil, there's more ways to confront evil than to fret about it or to pray over it, right? That we, we have a mandate then to seek redress through physical action. Uh, or even if it to the degree that it costs us, right? What did Christ say? There's no greater love than that a man lay down his life for someone else. Uh, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense in the world of logic or, or logic, but it makes a lot of sense. And it's
1: very, it's, it, it's funny because it's, it's anti- it's anti-Darwinian, yet it has produced the most successful culture ever. That's and this right. is where, I guess, this is the shard of, of divinity or supernatural that comes in to the grim repetition of eat, screw and die that characterizes the natural world and say, okay, well, if the opposite of Darwinianism has produced the most successful culture, didn't I say average people would learn from evidence? Okay. I got to mull that one over, and I got to stop here at another call. But yep. uh, thank you for a great conversation. Great and talk. Listen, your 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 um, inspiration and guidance in these matters is uh, deeply important to me, and I really, really do appreciate that.
0: I appreciate you too. You've you've helped me a lot more than you'll know, and so uh, want to wish you and your family a really merry Christmas, and uh, let's tackle Dostoevsky in January.